Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. We're going to be going to two scriptures this morning. The first is found in Psalms. Go with me to Psalms 84. Usually you kind of take your Bible, just let it fall open to the middle, and you usually land on the Psalms. Psalms chapter 84 And this is the theme that we are on for a few weeks. Following, I'm going to read this, this, the first part of the text as we shared last week. Then we're going to go to a second text. And it is, if you go two books to the left of Psalms, to the book of Esther. So the book right before Psalms is Job. Before that is Esther. Go to book of Esther chapter 1. Psalms 84 Esther chapter 1, we do encourage you. I know we have our devices and they're wonderful for picking up the scriptures. We do put it in front. I just, I don't know, there's something about the hard copy that just feels right when you open it up and you can mark it up and it's just, you can go back to it again and see it in context. It's good. So we want to pick this up. Psalms 84, our theme, I'm just going to do the first two verses, but Psalms 84, how lovely is your dwelling place. Lord Almighty, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Then just a couple of verses later, it says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Then he says, Better is one day in your courts. Finish it for me. Than a thousand anywhere else. Better is one day in the courts of the King of Kings than to have a thousand along the beach of wherever. Now, the beach is not bad, but he's saying comparison? It's a comparison. Better one day in the courts of the King. Better one day in the courts of God Almighty, the creator of everything. Better is one day in your presence, God, than to have a thousand elsewhere. What, a, what, a, what an amazing picture. I, I just see that. He continues. He said, I would rather, he's like trying to convince them because it's a hard audience. <laughs> I know it's not a hard audience here. There's affirmation, but he said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And those tents weren't like little pup tents. Those, those were extravagant places. The places of pleasure. The tents of pleasure. He said, but I'd rather, I'd, rather, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I'd rather get close. To be in proximity. And it's really that's the theme. We're talking about, about preparing to enter the king's presence. He's referred to as Lord Almighty or Lord our King. How lovely is the dwelling place. And my heart has been stirred. We are in a series called Reignite. That God would reignite the fire of his work in our hearts. If many of us are honest, the fire has gone out or has almost gone out. The fire is not what it should be. Either what it was or what it ought to be. Oh God, reignite a fire in my heart, a passion for your name, a passion for you, Lord. May there be a consuming fire, something that would come from the embers and bring into full flame. God, stir my heart 
Because there's so many things of this world that is screaming for our attention, isn't there? How can my heart be single-minded towards the Lord? How can he be my first, my first love? And any love be so much in the distant second. So how lovely is your dwelling place? God, take us there. So this, this emphasis in the next two to three weeks is an emphasis to have our hearts reignited to the place where we would likewise with the psalmist say, my heart, my soul faints for you, Lord to be in your presence, that the Lord would take us there. So, Lord, Father, I pray that you would open your word to us today. Help us to even see with living examples what you are calling us into. That, Lord, this is not something that is a distant dream or for only certain people. It really is an open invitation for all who would hear and respond. Lord, you said, you said, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. If we hunger and thirst. God, I pray, stir up that hunger and thirst so that we would be filled with you. In Jesus' name we pray. If that's your prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Go with me to Esther. She is the example. Esther chapter 1. Trust that some of you read that this last week. I made that a homework assignment. If you haven't, do so if you would. It's only 10 chapters. It's not a big read. To read through the whole book of Esther, it's an easy read. It's a story that just unfolds. It's, it's, it's a tremendous love story, and it's a story of deliverance. Esther chapter 1, Let's, we're just going to try to get background to the story that we're going to look at today. So the background begins, really, we begin where it begins Chapter 1, verse 1. Follow along with me. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Can I just pause here for a second? We're going to pick up verse 2 in just a second. I need to bring a bit of history here. You go back to biblical history to the time of 722 B.C., before Christ. 722 B.C., was a very difficult time in the, in the history books of the, the Hebrew nation because that nation fell of the 12 tribes, the top 10 tribes called Israel, fell to the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire was strong. It basically dominated world events back in, 700, in the mid-700s B.C. The southern two tribes of Israel called the tribes of Judah... Those two tribes would hang on for another 200 years before they would be exiled. At the moment they are exiled, which was 586 B.C., the moment of their exile, the, the government had changed. The world powers had changed. No longer was Babylon in control. Persia was in control. If you go back and study history, you'll see this. The Persian Empire, Persian Empire, so Persia took tribes of Judah in 586 B.C., so in the mid-500 B.C., Persia was the governing force. The book of Esther is about 400 B.C. So we're moving closer to the time of Christ. We're modernizing. But Persia is an all-time high in power at that time. So this is the king of Persia, 127, basically there were nations under him, 127 
provinces under him. And his name is Xerxes. Okay, so we pick it up. Let's do it again. So this is the time of Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Huge territory. Pick it up, verse 2. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom. That's a lot of wealth if it takes 180 days to display it. I mean, if you want to see my wealth, it'll probably take you a few seconds. It took 180 days to display this guy's wealth and the kingdom and splendor and glory of his majesty. He's a top dog in the story here. He gives, uh, when, the, when these days are over, verse 5, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. The liquor flowed. Party flowed. Seven-day banquet. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace and all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on, on marble pillars. There were couches of gold, ouch, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of uh, porteri, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. He's describing the splendor, the opulence. Verse 7, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. Verse 8, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the, king's for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, you know what that means, right? He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and there they are, verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display or to flaunt her beauty for the people and nobles. Now, remember, he's saying this. He's decreeing this out of his drunken state. So he would flaunt the, his, his Miss America. He would flaunt her. She was lovely to look at, verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. God bless her. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Uh, you want to read the rest of the story. You really do. This is an intriguing story of opulence. Intriguing story. I wanted to take the time so you picture how great this king was. How huge. And probably not the nicest guy in many ways. But nonetheless, he ruled the world at that time. The story of Esther. 
is a story of a young Jewish peasant girl. She has yet to come into play in the story yet. We're building up. She's a young peasant girl who will be paraded, herded through the back door of the Persian king's palace. It's coming up. And she will rise from bottom to top in no time. It's a story of a nobody finding a place as a somebody in world affairs. It's a story of God taking what seems ordinary and impossible and elevating it to a place where it changes history. It changes history. She would win the heart of this king. And God would place her in a position that would turn the affairs of the world. Long before Esther was suddenly elevated to become princess and queen, the queen of Persia, long before all that happened in the story we just read, this queen, the present queen, Vashti, would fall from grace. We see it. No one really knows why Queen Vashti refused to obey the command of King Xerxes. We aren't told. Many have speculated. There are speculations. We don't know what happened to her other than she was banished. But we do know tradition. And I would look back into some tradition here today. want to give you some of the story behind the story. Mideast tradition would have it that in such situations like what she just did, a hood would have been placed over her face. Her fate would have been sealed. And she would never again see the face of the king. Esther's story reveals eternal wisdom about how to prepare to enter the king's courts. How do I get from where I am to knowing him? How do I get to the place of Psalms 84? How lovely is your dwelling? How do I come into that place of his dwelling place where the psalmist would say, I would rather even just have a glimpse of the courts of the Lord. We're talking the king of kings. Than to be anywhere on this earth that this earth could provide. Just to have that glimpse. How do I prepare? Because we think we can just flippantly, frequently, just flippantly. He just accepts us the way I am. It's who I am. Love me. Well, he calls us the way we are. That's by his grace. You don't have to do anything to merit his love. But upon his call, we are entering into the courts of the king. And you cannot read through the Old Testament. You cannot read through the preparation of the Hebrew people preparing to go into the inner place of the Holy of Holies without acknowledging there was serious preparation of the hearts of the people. The work that is involved in not earning his favor as in the story, but that our hearts would be changed in the presence of a holy God. The story of Esther reveals the way God overcomes human weakness and failure, elevating my position and rank all the way into the very throne room of his glory. It's a great story. Last week we talked about kings. I wanted to feed into what something often we don't understand regarding kingdoms and kings. And, and my daughter last week uh, had, had just made comment because I was talking about kings. She, she asked me the question, my daughter where does a king put his armies? Where does a king put his armies? I honestly hadn't thought about it. 
I don't know, maybe you know, where does the king put his armies? So, um, so I asked, where does the king put his armies? She shrugged her shoulders and said, in his sleeves. Might take a while. It did for me too. So I'm not talking about king putting his armies in his sleeves. I'm making reference here to a great, a great story of a person who would find the grace of God. The story of Esther. It was World War II, it was said, that Hitler and the Nazis actually banned in Germany and in the empire. They banned the book of Esther from even being in that nation. For they feared the book of Esther. One of the Holocaust writers wrote this, quote, This unforgettable book of Esther teaches that Jewish resistance to annihilation, then as now, represents the service of God and devotion to his cause. In every age, martyrs and heroes, as well as ordinary men and women, have seen in it not merely a record of past deliverance, but a prophecy of future salvation. Amen. So let's talk of this. A couple of things I want to share this morning. Our glory is incomparable with our king's glory. Esther in her peasant state was incompatible with the union of that king of the time. And that is our story. Scripture says that our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64. Our, our righteousness is as of filthy rags. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, Paul would say, we carry with us the aroma of this world, and the smell of this world is the smell of death. So we don't have much to bring to the table, would you say? We don't have a whole lot to offer because of sin. We slip over to Esther chapter 2 and go down to verse 2. Let's pick it up. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women and note this, and let beauty treatments be given to them. We're going to come back to that. And let beauty treatments be given them. Verse 4, then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. Yet the young woman, sorry. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So it seems simple enough. Verse 3, simple enough. They're going to find a new queen. Verse 3, let beauty treatments be given them. So, you know, get the hair done, makeup, nails, right? I mean, what more do you need in beauty treatments? Sounds simple. But I'm going to say it is far from simple. If we understand the customs, it is so far from simple. Let's, let's bring a comparison today. How many here are married? Go ahead. Don't be ashamed. Okay. Do you remember the wedding? How simple was it? 
some of it might have, yeah, we eloped, okay? Um, no, I didn't. I'm just, if, if you did, then it might have been simple. No, it wasn't simple. It wasn't simple for Lori and myself. It wasn't nothing simple about the wedding whatsoever. That 45 minutes of wedding ceremony was anything but simple. I remember when we got married, the preparations began almost a year before the wedding. Six months, we had to knuckle down. Six months before the wedding. It was like, we got to get going on this. Six months. And the preparations, not just any wedding dress will do. You got to have just exactly the right one. To me, they kind of look similar. They're white, right? They look like they're all going to make you look fat, right? Like they're white. Well, how do you say that? And yet I was not popular in that opinion. There are so many different dresses, and there's nostalgia behind it, and just the right one, and then to have it tailored and to carefully have it prepared. And then the wedding party. It's like a small army. That selection of them. Who? Oh, battles took place. Who? Who you're going to have? And so, and so not to offend, you have to have another one. And so it's not to offend them, you have to have another one. On a, Then you have, this, like I said, an army of a wedding party. And then, of course, they all had to have matching clothes. And to have them purchased and tailored in time and in fashion. And dare anybody gain weight or lose weight in that six months, which is never the case. Parents and family, oh, blessings to Daniel and Juki. Parents and family, they did come to me this past week, and their wedding is going to be in November. And uh, so we talked about family and friends. Uh, God bless you guys. It will be fun. Uh, yes, we, do you remember that? Do you remember your wedding, family, planning? Uh, everybody has an opinion. They want their wedding to be lived through, your, your wedding lived through them. To get them all assembled, to get these two sides to agree. And if you are a blended family, that's even now it gets dicier. Um, flower girls, ring bearers. Oh, yes, the rings. There's another story. Fiasco around the rings. And then the photographer, the minister. Well, why not have two or three? Because you don't want to offend the one you had before and the other one. So not multiple ministers, decorations, invitations, gifts, reservations, dinner arrangements, rentals, vehicles, the procession, the protocols, the rehearsals, the food, the rehearsal food, the pictures, the toasts, the singers, the scripture readers, the musicians, the costs, ching, 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 custodians, perfumes, colognes, the garner, the boutonnieres, the wedding, all for 45 minutes. The reason I took time, painstaking time for me to put that through, was it was no less such a big deal in the time of Esther. 
when she was preparing to meet the king, it wasn't like wash up and meet the king. We're talking some major preparations. One year, one year, set aside. They are set aside. They do not intermingle with society for a year. And in that year, every day, their days are full of preparation for 365 days before they would be paraded for a few seconds before a king. You imagine. Grab a hold of that now. She is an orphan young woman. Her parents are gone. Her uncle's raising her. She has nothing. But somehow somebody put her name on the roster among many who would be paraded before the top dog of the world, potentially to be his queen. The story, that's the story of Esther. You know, it's why couples often, when we focus on the wedding, the wedding, and, and I caution this, we focus so much even in our society on the wedding that lasts maybe 45 minutes, take or give. The wedding of 45 minutes that we neglect to prepare for the marriage because the marriage lasts a lifetime. We put so much into that 45 minutes, we neglected the person. That you really, that's what needs to be the focus, not the ceremony. Scripture reveals that Esther would spend 12 months preparing to enter the courts. How lovely, Psalms 84, how lovely are your courts, O Lord. So we just don't wander into his courts. We prepare to go into his courts. Esther chapter 2, verse 12 it reads, before a, young woman turns, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. That's basically what I want to talk about today. I found some very interesting things I want to pass on to you regarding this verse. 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. So often, in the next few verses, when I would read Esther, I would just skip over because it was boring to me. And I would get to the good part. You know, the battle between Haman and Esther and Mordecai. Okay, I like that part. I like people, you know, hanging from the gallows. That, that got my excitement going. The, the great story of kind of a Cinderella story. That was wonderful. And I kind of slipped through this, and I realized this was included for a reason. So here we are maybe to discover that reason. I want to read verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Now, in our North American culture, it doesn't comprehend Middle East preparation of the bride for a marriage. There's cultural differences. It has long been known that fragrant oils and spices were major exports from the great empire of Persia. But little has been known about the spices the Persians used. Began to dig into some of this stuff. Persia uh, was well known for their spices. Persian women placed in small cosmic burners oils of roses and cloves and the essence of musk on coals to, perf to perfume their skin. This was, I guess, common knowledge. They would perfume their skin. They would perfume their clothing. They would do this 
by crouching down over a cosmetic burner with the robe draped over them like a tent. And the essence of the fragrance, it's like a fragrant sauna, would infiltrate their clothing and their skin. And they would do this for countless hours and days. That their skin and clothing would, would ooze the fragrance of what they were trying to, to accomplish. That was the day. There were two fundamental ingredients. Now remember Esther is preparing to meet the king. Just to be paraded. She's in preparation for a year. What does the preparation look like? Why does it matter? Because we want to meet the king. We are preparing our hearts, oh God. I want to be in the courts of the Almighty. I want to know what, this is about worship. I say Esther's a handbook on worship. It's a book on deliverance. It's a book on worship. How do we worship the Lord? How do I worship him? So uh, let's start with the first the first is myrrh. The first ingredient, Esther chapter 2, verse 12, tells us that Esther would spend the first six months of her stay in the king's palace being prepared with the oil of myrrh. Myrrh. How much do we know about myrrh? Well, myrrh is a fragrant gum of a plant with soft organic properties. It actually restricts the flow of bodily fluids. So more myrrh you get into your system, your bodily fluids slow down. So like sweat and stuff like that. It slows that down. That it does not stink like it normally does. Myrrh was included throughout Scripture. Myrrh is actually something that is not silent. You hear a lot about myrrh. In the holy preparations used in worship, in the early tabernacle of Moses, myrrh was a significant ingredient. Myrrh was used in both the holy anointing oil in the thicker mixture burned before the altar of incense. Myrrh. These preparations were considered sacred and holy, set apart exclusively for God. It was a way back at the time of Moses where it was perfected. Anyone who used them for personal or profane or common use would face the death penalty. You did not prepare myrrh just for you. You prepared myrrh to enter into the holy of holies and nothing else. And if you abused it, back then it was so serious you could be killed. Myrrh. It's remarkable that myrrh appears five times in the life of Jesus. I began to go one after the other, began to see in Jesus. Let's look at them. When Jesus was born, the wise men came from the east bearing gifts to the newborn king. And remember what one of them was? Precious myrrh. The first anointing of Jesus, which was the anointing of gifts before he was aware that anybody even existed as a baby, was myrrh, was offered at his birth. The second time myrrh is mentioned in the life of Jesus, we see it at his first physical anointing. In Luke chapter 7, 36, tells the story of a sinful woman who would come to Jesus and she would use over a, wage, a year's wages to buy this costly form of myrrh. 
She would bring the myrrh and she would get at Jesus' feet. And she poured out all of her myrrh on Jesus' feet. And her tears mingled. She wept. This was a woman who was a sinful woman. She spent her lifetime in prostitution, probably forced into it. And she felt of no worth. Here she was at the feet of Jesus. What an amazing picture. You read of it in the Gospels. And she pours out this expensive myrrh on Jesus' feet. She's anointing his feet with myrrh, her tears, and she wipes it with her hair. Simon, the house of Simon the Pharisee. The picture of this story is one of the purest pictures of the bitterness of repentance. Here she is knowing the power of God's grace, but also the depths of her sin. The bitterness of repentance. Oh God, I have so fallen from you. Oh God, I'm undeserving of you. But God, in your grace and your mercy, you receive me to you. What an amazing picture. The second, the second anointing of myrrh was the anointing of repentance. It's the bitterness of it's The myrrh has a quite a distinct smell to it. Distinct smell. And she would pour it out on his feet. It was one of the purest pictures of bitterness and repentance that would lead to the sweetness of forgiveness and of divine acceptance. The third mention of myrrh and Jesus was the second anointing on Jesus. Mary, Martha, the story where they're together. Mary, the one, two sisters. Mary would anoint Jesus with myrrh in Bethany. We read of this in Matthew chapter 26, 6, at the house of Simon the leper. But this time she doesn't anoint his feet, she anoints his head. She takes it and she breaks it over Jesus' head. The disciples were told that this was a testament that that fragrant would be smelt unto his death. Here again, myrrh served as anointing oil of bitterness, of bitterness. Fourth time Jesus had myrrh applied was at his death. Myrrh was mixed into a drink. The Roman soldiers, as soon as they put Jesus, they offered this to all the soul, all the ones on the cross. The soldiers were given, and Jesus was offered myrrh by the Roman soldiers on the cross. Myrrh is often linked again with repentance and sanctification, meaning set apart, that there's repentance. So myrrh was given, and the people knew that. They would represent, our, I hope you're mournful for your sin as you're offered myrrh on the cross. Myrrh was also somewhat of an intoxicant if you were to consume. Jesus refused to drink myrrh. I talked of that a few weeks ago when we had your Good Friday service. Jesus refused the earlier offering of myrrh because it would have also somewhat deadened his pain. He would think, well, accept it. But no, Jesus needed to bear all things because you and I aren't offered anything to bear our pain except him. He wanted to suffer in all ways so that he could truly represent you and me. What a beautiful picture. And so he refused it. That was one of the reasons he refused it. But the second reason Jesus refused the myrrh that was offered to him early as he was on the cross in the, in the, in the, in the midst of his pain was become is because myrrh was a picture of repentance. Jesus had nothing to repent of. In essence, had he taken it at that point, it would have, it would have avoided his mission because he was the perfect lamb of God. And finally, myrrh again comes out at Jesus' burial. Five times you see myrrh used in Jesus. 
Myrrh was one of the fragrance and spices of choice used to wrap the Lord's body after he died. And likewise, myrrh represents the fragrance of repentance, the fragrance of purity, needs to be woven into our lives. So myrrh is a picture, oh God, my sin has separated us, forgive me. Lord, I live not to please myself, I live to please you. I live my life to consecrate before you. Myrrh is a consecration, it's a giving up. It's God, I sacrifice my rights for you. Myrrh is a sacrifice before him. God, purify me, cleanse me of my sin. It's not a one-time, it's an everyday. Oh, Lord, I continue, I continue to wander in heart and mind. God, forgive me, cleanse me. Beautiful parallel of Esther's preparation compared to our Lord's progression to the cross. His destiny from a babe born in a manger, growing up in a peasant family, all the way to the cross and rising again as the king of kings. The picture of Esther, orphaned, orphaned, no mom, dad, who would rise into the courts of the king is a picture of what was to come, a picture of Christ. You see, beloved, God requires the fragrance of anointing before you come before him. Come, you must have myrrh. The first six months of Esther, the preparation was a preparation of purification. They understood it. Purification, the removal of toxins of her body, the things that normally would come from her body. Myrrh was applied, the bitterness of her own body, the things would be zoomed out of her body from within and from without. She would be prepared for six full months, constant bathing, constant application with the oil of myrrh would bring a cleansing and a purification and a softening of her skin. It would be so embedded, the fragrance so embedded in who she was. Six months of it. In other words, it's fair to say Esther would literally ooze the bitter fragrance of repentance. Oh, beloved, I hope we see the parallel. If you want to live in the presence and the courts of the King of Kings, oh, he accepts you. But if you want to dwell in his presence, if you want to experience the loveliness of his presence, then make repentance, make repentance. The issues of the things that separate you, a part of your daily moment-by-moment routine. God, may there be, search my heart and find the things that separate me from you. Don't just wander into his presence. Let there be the myrrh applied. Repentance. And maybe today that's the biggest word we're going to get out of this. God, forgive me. Forgive me. There's things that I need to lay at the altar. My own heart will separate us. We should breathe it. We should pray it. We be it. The first six months, she was prepared with myrrh. And then six more months, six more months, the second was frankincense. The last six months, following the cleansing with myrrh, the next six-month period was immersion and saturation with sweet spices. The first was bitter, sour. The second, spices were largely included frankincense. Unlike myrrh, frankincense releases a fragrance only in the heat of a fire. You have to put it into a fire to get frankincense to smell. I want to just say this, frankincense 
depicts worship. Some forms of worship can only be released. Listen to this. Some forms of worship can only be released, and their sweetest frankincense is in the trials and the adversities of your fire. When we worship God, when things are only good, there's not much frankincense rising. But when life has kicked the rug out from underneath you, and you are going through what you might call hell on earth, and in that you lift the sacrifice of praise and worship to your Lord, it's called sweet fragrance. Frankincense rises before him. It comes forth in your fire. In your fire. Are you going through a fire? Have you been going through a fire? Probably you will at some point. And in that time, it's not the time to pull away. It's the time to worship him. It's the time to press near. It's the time to make your life an abiding sacrifice. Let the fires burn so that worship will rise. There's an old song we used to sing. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of sacrifice. Sacred means that you don't feel like it, and everything in your life says you have no reason to sing a song. You know, in the story of Psalms 84, it says that you were to discover, you would discover, let me just read it. That's easy to read this as I have it right here. Psalms 84, if you go down to verse 5, let me just read it. Psalms 84, 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, God, whose hearts are set on a pilgrimage. It's a journey. Verse 6, here it is. As they pass through the valley of Baca, the word Baca means weeping. As their hearts are broken, they make it a, a place of springs. It didn't say they will find a spring. They said as they go through the valley of weeping, because they are blessing the Lord, their hearts are on him in the pilgrimage, going from strength to strength. He says, as they pass through their seasons of weeping, they turn their weeping into springs of joy. Wow, God help us. Oh, we like to sometimes bask in our Bacchus. But the Lord says, if you pass through the valley of Bacca and you bring the sacrifice of praise, and it's not superficial stuff. They say, oh God, I come into your presence. I don't shake my fist at you. I don't ignore you. I don't be consumed with the things of this world. No, now's my time to turn my heart to you. Now's the time to turn my affections towards you. And in the valley of Baca, springs will turn the valley of weeping into a valley of joy. Wow, beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. Sacrifice of praise in times of trouble is especially sweet and pleasant to the king of kings. In the tabernacle and temple of ancient Israel, the smoke that would be in the holy place was the smoke that wafted from the altar of incense. And what was on the altar of incense was frankincense. It would waft, and it would waft into the holy presence of Jehovah God. Obscuring, they couldn't see the flesh of man serving anymore. No, instead, you had moved from the flesh into the divine. You have gone from the place of what was into the place of who he is. You are standing in the courts of the Lord now. And in there, there's nothing like it. A thousand days in the tents of this world were not compared to that moment at the gate of his presence. The frankincense. This is where Esther, this is where Esther was in the last six months. 
She began as an orphan peasant, but through her perseverance, month after month, the preparation, preparation, she would bring about the deliverance of an entire nation. And it's here I want us to just hold on to this today. Never underestimate the preparation of entering into the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Never see it as a prelude to something else. It is the main event. Worship is the main event. Well, his repentance is the main event. The place of sacrifice and praise in the valley of weeping is the main event. This is what it's about. Soak in the oil. The oil of repentance. God, purify me. Soak in the fragrance of the fire. Frankincense. That out of the valley of weeping, he would turn something beautiful. Mix in the myrrh of repentance and cleansing. Immerse yourself without inhibitions in the sweet odors of worship. Dwell in the place of adoration. Linger in the place of affections and ministry to God. This is the way to deliverance. Deliverance is coming. Deliverance is coming as you prepare to meet the king. Who knows? Who knows what might be around the corner in yours and my life? What deliverance we're about to see. Because you prepared to spend that moment paraded before the king changes your destiny. So, Psalms 84. Invite the worship team to come. Psalms 84. Let me just read the first couple of verses again. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Father, Lord, we just commit our hearts to you this morning. God, as we've just read these few verses, and it's so easy to pass over them. But this was key to everything that would happen for the next nine chapters. is the preparation of this one person who would submit to the bitterness of repentance, the cleansing and purification of heart and soul that would, would just breathe out, would just breathe out that God, your mercies are new every morning. God, a person who would immerse herself in the frankincense, the sweetness, the sweetness of worship, the sweetness of who you are, the sweetness of exhortation and exaltation, adoring you because you are God. Lord, I pray this morning that would we go through the valley of Baca into the place and turning it into the springs of joy. God, start with us. Lord, I pray today, if there's something maybe right here and now, we just need to ask your forgiveness for. Lord, cleanse our heart today. Just going to invite you, just go ahead. If there's something that came to your or comes to your mind, let's just lay it before the altar of the Lord this morning before we close our time together. Maybe something we said. Maybe there's been an issue and an attitude of our heart. Maybe we have wounded and hurt others. Maybe it has to do with our marriage, a family member. Maybe it has to do with a habit, a lust of the flesh. Maybe it has to do with greed, wantedness. Lord, forgive us.
bring to our mind because you want us to apply the myrrh to purify us. Here this morning, we receive it, Lord. Forgive us. Lord, we bring our hearts like vessels to the ever-flowing stream. Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord, and overflow us with your love. Take it from us, Lord. Take it from us, O God. Father, we maybe we have just been lost in our anxieties and our fears, the cares of this world. and Not that they're not real. They are. But they've consumed us, Lord, in such a way that we've really had a hard time redirecting our face towards you. We've wandered from your courts. We've maybe been spending all our time, you know, researching at the doctor's course. God, you're the healer. Bring healing today. In Jesus' name. Lord, maybe our hearts, our psychological disorder, our emotional disorder has caused us to seek everyone else, but Lord, maybe we just need to bring our emotions and our minds before your courts today. Oh God, we worship you. We lay it before you right now. Come Holy Spirit. We welcome you. We welcome you into every room of our life. Every closet of our life. Every affection. Come Holy Spirit. Sweet aroma flood this place. Sweet aroma flood this place. Oh from our hearts in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the flame of our fires. Be glorified, O God. Be lifted high, O King of kings. May the praise of our God fall from the lips of our mouths. May our hearts drip with adoration to you. Jesus, be lifted high. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You are Lord. He has risen. He's my God. I worship you. I bring the sacrifice of praise into the courts of my King. Be glorified. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca